Coming Up Next is available on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Spotify, on Podbean, on YouTube, and you can find links to each of those platforms at comingupnext.com.au. Head there for the entire back catalogue of podcast rambles, and while you're there, select one of those links, hit the subscribe button, and uh, streamline your podcast listening experience. To another episode of Coming Up Next, the podcast. <sighs> it's uh, another Tuesday, another podcast ramble heading your way. Uh, before we get to this week's episode, thank you to my guest last week. And thank you to everyone who tuned in. If you haven't tuned in, you can find the episode at comingupnext.com.au. I am speaking, of course, about my ramble with the extraordinary uh, painter, Alexander McKenzie. Um, We speak about what it's like uh, to live the life of an artist, what that really means. Um, It's uh, it's pretty, I guess, big idea, big philosophical kind of ramble. And you can find it, as I said, comingupnext.com.au. My guest this week is uh, a comedian whose work I sort of only recently got to know, but as it turns out, we've uh, we've actually mixed in a lot of similar circles. Um, and she invited me to her place in London to come and have a good old-fashioned chat about, uh, about her career, um, about her journey to, uh, or through comedy rather. Um, I'm speaking, of course, about Beck Hill. Uh, you can find her on Twitter at Beck Hill Comedian. Um, she's on YouTube. Uh, you can find her work all over the place. Uh, I was introduced to her work um, looking at a, a, a video, Beck Hill Translates, uh, the Edith Piaf tune, No Regrets. I'm not even going to attempt to say the actual name of it because um, I'll sound like a moron. But uh, suffice to say, it's an incredibly uh, funny video. In fact, you know what? Just hit pause, go and watch that video, and um, then come back and listen to the rest of this podcast. By the time, actually, by the time you've watched the video, I will have finished with this introduction, and it'll probably sync up really well to the interview beginning. Anyway, uh, we speak about, you know, growing up in Adelaide, we speak about her formative years as a comedian. Uh, all the way through to moving to London. It's a very tangential, very coming up next interview. So please make welcome my guest this week, Beck Hill. I'm, I'm quite enjoy sitting on the floor as well. I also quite enjoy sitting on the floor. I don't know what it is. It's very grounding. In Literally, yeah, yeah, yeah. I once had a photographer get in touch and he said he was doing an exhibition where he was taking photos of people doing their jobs. So he had like a CEO who wanted a photo at their desk and with their name, you know, on the little name block. Yep. Green block? Yeah, yeah. Is that like, you know, and <laughs> yeah. see, that's why I'm not a CEO. And 
he had all these people sort of doing their jobs and he said, you know, I was wondering if I could come to some of your gigs and get some photos of you performing. And I said, I, I mean, you can do that, but ev like every comic has a photo of them on stage because that's where we are most of the time. Um, and that's we tend to use photos for promotion and that sort of thing. So you can do that, but it's going to look like any other. Like there's not much you can do to make that look different. And I said, if you really want to get a photo of me working, come to my place while I'm, while I'm making a new flip chart for my new show because um, I use these two-dimensional pop-up animation style flip charts and so he came over and I work on the floor normally because it's the big it's bigger than a desk <laughs> and so I was sat on the floor with my dressing gown on my glasses on and just surrounded by paper and sharpies and and uh, crayons and scissors and tape and everything and he just took photos of me looking at me like you know I haven't done my hair or anything it's all over the place and and he just took photos of me doing that because I said, if you want to show people what like being a comedian is, you've got to show the, like, the ugly side of it as well. And most of that is prep or booking trains over here. That's like, that's probably a good 60% of my job is like finding a train route that isn't going to cost as much as the gig's paying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess you never really, unless you're living the life, you don't really consider that the performative part of it is actually a really small fraction of the pie chart. Yeah. Yeah, it's so small. It's so small. Like everything everything else in your life is like prepping for that. It's like it's like um giving birth. You know, like 9 months of it, you don't really you don't see the baby as such. Like you see evidence of it, but like it's just like growing and stuff. And then there's only like that one bit where the actual birth happens. Mm. But your body's prepping for it for 9 months. Yeah, I guess it's like sports people who train, like most of their week is spent training yeah. to play a game that will last maybe as long as one training session. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah. Mm, but you're conditioning yourself and you're like, uh, I don't know, I guess ingraining things into your, into your physical being or into your psyche or whatever so that you can do that. Yeah. I guess hopefully at, at a high level. Yeah, that's it. Although that said, a lot of it is also me. If that is the case, then I've got a lot of practice in answering emails. <laughs> I'm really good at it. If anything, this comedy has been a great training for me to get like an, an entry level secretary job. Yeah. <laughs> How long have you lived in London for? Um, this is my 10th uh, year in London wow. and my 11th year in the UK. Yeah, so wow. I was up in Edinburgh first. Okay. Yeah. And you used to live in Adelaide? Yeah, yep. So you grew up, that's where you grew up? Grew up in, well, so the um, first couple of years uh, we lived in Hong Kong because my dad did IT out there. And then when I hit four and my brother was, my, my brother was a baby, he was born out there. Um, and it was just a bit much, like it was a bit lost in translation for my for my mum and, and she'd sort of been uprooted from having a job and suddenly like, looking after two kids in, in this faraway city. And normally that, like, when you've got kids, that's that's when you want to be closest to your parents because they're, like, free babysitting and stuff. So it was just a bit a bit much. So they moved back to Adelaide then. And then, yeah, then Adelaide until I was 18. Basically, as soon as I finished high school, I, I moved to Melbourne. Like, I just moved out as soon as I could. And that's no, like, I love my family, but I, I get itchy feet. Mm. What was your mum doing prior to... Uh, my mum's a, a librarian 
Um, and she's sort of been a librarian in different um, capacities. So I think before she went out to Hong Kong, she was a librarian for um, like an archivist for IBM or something like that. She's, if she ever listens to this, she'll be like, no. <laughs> but it just shows I like, never pay attention at all. But uh, yeah, and then and then she's she's done those things. She when we went back, she was a librarian for TAFE in Adelaide, and then she's been a librarian in high schools, and now she's a librarian in a public library. Yeah. So I guess books and reading were pretty uh, prevalent in your oh, yeah, house yeah. growing up. Yeah, I grew up with a lot of books, a lot of reading, and my I was lucky because my dad really, my dad is a natural storyteller and loved telling us stories and reading them and stuff. And uh, my parents were in a medieval reenactment group because um, I'm really cool and <laughs> uh, and his role in the group was as the storyteller like a sort of John Hurt you know Jim Henson style character and he um, he had all the outfits he had all these robes and this turban and this stuff which as an as an adult in 2019 I'm like hmm a little bit of cultural appropriation but you know he was going for a character and he would learn all of the um, like a thousand and one Arabian Nights. Um, he would he would re read them and read them and try and memorize his favorite ones to to retell there. So I grew up with hearing about Shahrazad and all of the like because she ended up telling all the bases for Sinbad and um, Aladdin and and a lot of those stories all stem from that. Mm. Mm. Wow! Do you remember the first time that you performed or that you did something? that has that kind of gave you that that uh that spark or that experience yeah well i let's see i, I was mary a lot growing up because right. in hong kong i was one of like i um i was very pale let's just put it that way <laughs> um compared to my classmates in kindergarten so when they did the nativity i was mary um and then uh, and in primary school i was mary and then what happened was uh my 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 first reception teacher, uh, I was really hypo. I wouldn't say hypo because I wasn't like diagnosed as that, but I was very like bouncing off the walls and hard to pin down. Too much coffee. Always too much coffee, yeah. And then my um, every other teacher had said to my mum, you know, you should get her tested for ADD and all this sort of stuff. My mum was like, she doesn't have ADD. Like she's fine. When she has something to concentrate on, she will concentrate. It's just she gets bored quickly. And, um, and it was my reception teacher who said, try, try putting her into an acting class. And then immediately that was like, yeah, I completely calmed down in other areas of my life because I had something to focus on and where I could put all my energy towards and stuff. So, um, yeah, from like five years old, I desperately wanted to be an actor. And then it's funny because I was telling you, I, I was listening to Tegan Higginbotham's episode and um, and we have a really similar sort of origin story where, but I feel like the only difference between us is she's genuinely a very good actor. And I had to come to the realization that I am not a great actor, but I have a lot of enthusiasm for being on stage. And um, yeah, it was a similar thing where we did a school play where I played the evil queen in um, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And I had to, uh, get very angry because you know one of my evil plans had been foiled and I was like I'm gonna go Stratoslavsky on this I'm gonna go like as really full-on as I can I'm gonna put 
all of my emotion into this and just show how angry and upset I am. And so I properly had a tantrum, like probably like, no! <laughs> and everyone laughed. And in my head, I was like, I am acting the crap out of this. Like, I'm so good at this. But then everyone was laughing and I, and, and it was, that was the point in my brain where I went, oh, because in my head, I'm being a really great actor and you're meant to feel scared of me because I'm very angry. And so I just went, oh, but laugh, this is nice. I'm quite enjoying the laughter. And I think after that, I was always chasing the, uh, the overacting in order to get the laugh. Right. It's funny about like how laughter can be, like it, it kind of becomes a currency in a way, especially mm. I think as you're growing up, like my family was, uh, my dad's, like my dad's side of the family is very, um, or oh, my dad's very gregarious and it was always about kind of outwitting each other in like in, in a sport of punsmanship. Oh yeah, I mean very much in my family as well. Um, wordplay. I think Aussies in general really enjoy wordplay. Um, it's uh, because every there's a lot of um, Aussie comics over here who all natural have a natural affinity to wordplay, which a lot of other comics don't. And so I think there's something about I don't know what it is about our culture, but um, yeah, I was I was I was thinking about it the other day actually because my mum was the one. My mum was like the one who was the worst at bringing out wordplay and stuff. My dad's <laughs> would do it too, but my mum was like relentless. Yeah. And um, like she's she's an awful commenter on, on Facebook, let's just put it that way. Right. <laughs> She'll always try and pop in a pun if she can. And so I think that's, yeah, I had the very similar thing growing up was that I was always trying to, we were always trying to outdo each other. And then I find it funny because puns are, are generally seen as dad jokes. And I was like, yeah, but it's, my mom joke. Yeah. <laughs> it's a mom joke. <laughs> we just got to say like what it is and just say bad jokes. <laughs> yeah, it's the same at um at like a family lunch or dinner table with uh with with dad's family. One person would just say something and then it would just be on mm. until and any like I remember my brother's girlfriend would well, ex-girlfriend would would be sitting there just like with a head in her hand so <laughs> mortified by the kind of <laughs> the scraping of the bottom of the barrel that it eventually would get to. Um, so were your parents, well, at, at what point did you sort of think that you wanted to pursue a career in entertainment, in, in the arts? I, I definitely, from the get-go, knew that I wanted to be on stage. I, I really wanted to be an actor, really bad. Um, but I didn't have what other especially at the time child actors had. I had, I maybe got like two auditions um, in, in my teens. And even then I was like, I thought, oh, I've got this. Cause they were so rare that I was like, well, clearly I'm gonna get this. And then I didn't and I was completely flawed. And then I had to start to realize it was because I wasn't as good as I thought I was. <laughs> Um, and so I always, but I'd always wanted to do that. And then as I went through high school, I realized I probably wouldn't end up as an actor. And I was looking at other sort of paths I could take. And then while I was sort of trying to work it out, it was my, my high school drama teacher. He, um, he always cast me as the comic relief in the plays. And quite often the comic relief character is, is male. And I went to just a normal public co-ed school like there was nothing you know it wasn't like I they had to cast women as men but I kept getting the male roles over 
dudes in my class. And, um, and, and I never got the female lead. And I really wanted the female lead all the time. Also because I quite fancied the male lead. And I like the idea of having an excuse to kiss. But I never, I never got the female lead. And then I, I was just feeling a bit like I, I, could, I was getting close to year 12 and I've been casting out another play as the, the, the wacky sidekick who was another dude. And I, I just said to my teacher, why, why don't I ever get the, the lead of that? And he, he said, well, comedy's really hard. Which was very sweet about. I think a lot of people say that, like comedy is the hardest form of acting or whatever. It's the hardest thing to do, and that's a very sweet thing. But I do think it was him sort of saying, "Well, you, you bring a lot to the stage, but it, it's not, it's not believability. Like it's not. No one's sitting there going, wow, what an, you know, I'm really hit with this, with this character.' And then, uh, and then I was, uh, I did interrupt the class a lot, and a oh, proper class clown, and I used to really frustrate him. Um, my teacher, Mr. T, and he was not Mr. T. Mr. That, T. Yeah, yeah, Mr. <laughs> Thomas was his name. We called right. him Mr. T. It wasn't. He didn't uh, pity you. He as did a not pity me at all. No. <laughs> and he, um, yeah, he he was the one. He was like, eventually took me aside and he said, "Have you ever thought about doing stand up?" And I'd been watching stand up since I was really young, but it never occurred to me to do it because in my head, stand up was what was done by. Uh, to be honest young white men or really old black men. Those were the only two types of stand-up I <laughs> yeah, knew. Like fair. I watched stand-up and I loved it, but those are the only people I but it was Bill Cosby saw. or Jerry Seinfeld. It's it, exactly. exactly. My whole family grew up on listening to Bill Cosby on road trips and stuff. Mm. And yeah, he's not aged well, but those mm. tapes were great. And I'm, I'm not like, that's not to justify anything he did. He's a horrible monster. But, um, but he was a fantastic storyteller. And yeah. I, I just, it never occurred to me that I could do that. And then that's when I sort of started entertaining the idea of giving it a go. And what, what, what was your, I guess, what was the trajectory from there to actually getting up on stage, I assume at some sort of open mic or something? Yeah, so I, the, technically my first gig was at a church youth group talent show. Where all good stand-ups usually begin. That's right, exactly. And I... Um, Everyone knew that I really liked telling jokes and making people laugh, and so I'd written some some observational stuff, which I really don't remember much. I remember one of them was, so I I can't say where I work, but let's just say it's a hut of pizza. <laughs> uh, and then I said, what I really hate is when people come in and they look at the menu for ages, and then they say, um, I'd like a pizza. Duh! <laughs> what else are you going to order? Shoes? That was like maybe one of my <laughs> earliest bits of observational stand-up. Right. And, um, uh, and because they were a church youth group, they were really supportive. <laughs> <laughs> and if I was to do that anywhere, they would have, I would have been told never to try it again. But they were great. And they said, yeah, yeah, you should do it again. <laughs> and so um, when I uh, finished high school, I sort of took a year to work out what I wanted to do and whether I was going to go to uni and what I would study. And during that time, um, raw comedy was happening. And so I... I eventually entered and I was so scared and I knew I had jokes that ran down I knew what I wanted to do um, and I I was so scared though and it was at the Rhino Room which is sort of Adelaide's only um, ongoing comedy club and purpose-built venue 
and one of um, one of the acts I loved watching at the time um, throughout my teens, and I'd always go whenever he was on, was Justin Hamilton, who's originally from Adelaide and um, now Mel. I think he's still in Melbourne. He was Melbourne based before, but I think he went to Sydney for a bit. Anyway, um, he uh, he was. I always loved watching him, and I had his email address, which as an adult I'm like. Why did I have like an older man's email address as a teenager? But it was like just a, because there were no, no one really had websites or anything. You might have a live journal maybe or a GeoCities. But if you wanted to find out when someone was GeoCities. on, yeah, right. <laughs> but I remember I th- I had his email address because I it was sort of like a mailing list. But there was no like Mailchimp. There was no there wasn't anything that easily sent it out. So he would just sort of occasionally send out an email and say this is when I'm on. So I had his email address from finding out when he was gigging at Rhino, and I emailed him and I said. Oh, um, you probably don't remember me, but I, um, I, I met you once after one of your gigs in Rainer Room, and I'm, I'm going to do raw comedy. And do you have any hints? And he wrote back, and he said, "Yep, yeah, um, rehearse your set." One of the biggest mistakes that new acts make is they think they can just go on and be funny, and they haven't done it long enough to be able to do that yet. Um, so he said, "No, write your jokes beforehand, learn them, um, practice them." And the best piece of advice he gave me, which I always tell people now, is he said, when you're practicing your jokes, hold something in your hand, like whether it's a remote or a, a hairbrush or whatever. And he said, because you'll be surprised at the amount of people who go on stage and as soon as they have to hold a microphone, they're down one hand because they've been practicing using both, gesticulating with both hands. And suddenly they've, they've only got one hand but their body's not used to that. And so they find they start, they still gesticulate, they take the microphone away from their face, they're not talking into it. And and it just shows how amateur they are. Um, and he said, if you practice holding something up to your mouth, then at least when you get up there and you're holding a microphone, it's not gonna feel alien to you. Um, and he was right. And it was, I, I still tell people to this day to do that because it, it makes such a difference. And um, yeah, that was, that was sort of, then I did my first gig at Rhino, um, at Rhino Room and Raw Comedy and, and I got through and did the, the heats and then the state finals. Um, and in that year, uh, I didn't make it to the nationals, but you get two, you can enter twice. So the following year, I, I, um, so I kept doing comedy um, and I ended up, Hamo actually ended up as the judge of the state final where I didn't get through. But he sort of took me aside and he was like, hey, um, don't, this isn't, you know, a, a criticism on you. You've still got a long way to go. Uh, the, the guy who won, won and went through to the Nationals is just, uh, it was Rob Hunter. And, uh, and they said, you know, he's, ju- he's just a bit further along than you. And, and, um, but I think you should keep trying. You should keep working on it. I think you should enter next year. And then he was doing his show at Melbourne Comedy Festival and he said, why don't you come to Melbourne you can experience comedy festival and you can do the first five minutes of my show every night, which is insane. It's in hindsight, I look back and I'm like, damn, that was lucky. But because I was so new to it all, there's something in my brain just went, oh, I guess this is what happens then. I guess <laughs> this is the normal trajectory of any stand-up is that they, they get a mentor. They meet Justin Hamilton. They meet Justin Hamilton. They get a five-minute support act spot every night and, in, and and then I flyed for him as well and he even gave me some money as well at the end of it which is so insane like yeah I like get he was technically just paying me to fly for him but um I was so thrilled and yeah he just really um took me under his wing 
and uh, yeah, it was just, I was insanely lucky. So I've just realised that there's some work going on outside our window. No, oh, that's okay. Um, additional uh, Foley character. That's right. Yeah, episode. yeah, yeah. The builders outside. Yeah. Um, yeah, I guess you know, like it's. I guess going back to what you were saying before, it's kind of like that the, the pie chart that we started speaking at the beginning, where yeah. it's all that shit that you didn't know before you went and got up on stage. That Justin was like, make sure you do this, make sure you get your hours in off stage. Yeah, yeah. So that when you get up there. Um, yeah, and I remember it as well. I remember it so clear. I don't remember the jokes, but I remember the feeling, and I remember walking on stage, reaching the microphone, and then having a moment where it was like that bit in The Matrix where everything turns to code and Neo <laughs> can see everything. And I just felt I just felt right and comfortable in the moment, and I remember... I don't, I don't feel like I rushed. I don't, and I rush these days. Like I still have to take moments and pause and breathe and really think about how I'm performing. But that first gig, I think I was so ready for it. And looking back, if there was, a, if there was footage of me, I'm sure I'd be like, oh, it's terrible. But I just remember it was, it was everything I wanted it to be. Mm. That's very cool. And I guess the comedy festival must have also gone well if you then moved to Melbourne from there yeah so um so I so I did that and then when I went back to Adelaide after comedy festival that year I um just kept doing gigs for um at the Rhino Room building up my set and then the following year I entered Raw again and then made the uh I made the national finals um which was a good year by the way uh because so I won the state finals in Adelaide um, but also a wild card from Adelaide was announced. And I think the reason she didn't win is because originally she had done the Tasmanian one, which might start to give away who this was. Um, she'd done the Tasmanian raw comedy and not gotten through or something like that. But she really wanted it so much. And so she went to South Australia and went, I'm going to enter the South Australian one. And then it, we were both in the state final and then I got through, but she got a wild card, rightfully so. And so she ended up in the national final as well, which of course was Hannah Gadsby. Um, and she won. She won that year as well. Um, and again, rightfully so. I'm just glad that I managed to get there at all. I, they couldn't have wild carded me. I wasn't like good enough to be a wild card, which is so funny. Um, but yeah, so then that was me, Hannah Gadsby, Celia Pacola. So was this like 2003 or something? 2004. Uh, Six, two thousand six. Yeah, right. uh, Tom um, Ballard. Yeah, it was a good year. There was like some incredible talent that year. So I'm really, I feel very. I know the phrase gets overused, but I feel really blessed that I got to like be even named amongst those people. Um, and then yeah, so I moved to Melbourne not long after that. Mm. And. What, at what point did you start developing this paper puppetry uh, That would have been around the same year. Um, although I didn't do it... Actually, no, it might have been after, because I, I certainly didn't do it in the Royal Comedy Competition. Um, but it wasn't long after. It was because I really wanted to do a sketch on stage. I had an idea for a sketch um, about a superhero uh, and his arch enemy. And then I realised that if I was going to do that, I would need to either get someone else to come on stage and help me with it, which 
it's so much faff. Mm. You know, if you're just a solo performer, then to bring either someone who's had to learn the lines on stage with you to do one thing or to bring someone up out of the audience, which you never know if they're going to do it right. And so, um, or the other option is you're a, you're such a good actor that you can do the voices and sort of like, um, like Sam Simmons. Yeah, exactly. And you can sort of like talk to yourself in a way where you play each character, but I can't, I'm, I'm terrible at voices. I'm really good at this one. <laughs> um, and so I thought, how am I going to do this? I've got this great sketch idea, but I don't know how to put it on stage. And I thought, what? Are, but I did like drawing cartoons. And so I thought, I'll draw it as a big, I'll draw it as a really sort of A2 sized panel with the two characters. And then I'll sort of point at who's talking. But then that felt really lame. And so I gave them moving mouths, like, um, like Monty Python's sort of Terry Gilliam style animation and I thought I'll give them moving mouths and that way you'll, they'll know which one's talking when I say their lines um, and then and then that got a really good reaction and it was such a simple thing and then of course when people sort of said oh I really like how their mouths moved and stuff then I was like oh okay how do I up this and so then I had little moving elements that would end up being the punchline to a sketch and then I realized it doesn't have to essentially be a sketch as such and uh, yeah, I, now everything I make, I always try and add a new technique or a new thing. So like now, my most re- my, back in those days, there were stick figures and it was black and white and it was very simple. And then these days, everything's in full colour and um, the drawings become a lot more sort of detailed. And I use like uh, one of them, I've, I've got these wide fairy lights so that it makes lightning on one of the pages. And then I had another where there was a... a, a the scene is a storm and then I managed to hook up a um, it was actually one of those pipes from a clown's squirting flower and I connected it all up to the tripod that the flip chart sits on so that when when the pages on and all the rain is happening then I put you squeeze a thing and water sprays out all over the audience and things like that so I've been trying to sort of up everything and make it more like I'd like to have at least one element that surprises everyone that they're not not expecting. It's pretty incredible, like, because you've essentially had to, I, I assume, teach yourself a kind of secondary art form yeah. in terms of, like, sketch, as, as a sketch artist, yeah. as well as kind of like, I don't even know what you would call it, but it's kind of pseudo-plumber, electrician, I mean, not really, but yeah, it's like, like an incorporating these type. kind of like... It's paper engineering yeah. in a way, yeah. Um, or, yeah, of course, with, with anything like that, it does then become a bit more... Yeah, I, I really enjoy the challenge of trying to work out how to make something um, appear... Um, I work Sometimes I work with a, a musical comedian called Jay Foreman. I've, I've made a few videos for him because I really rate his comedic songs and they're also at a really good pace for what I do as well and we once sat down to make one together for a um a testicular a testicular cancer awareness campaign um and he was writing a song called fiddle with your balls and and he sort of said you know uh, um what do you think what if I I write these lyrics and then can you do that and I said don't think about me I said you write the song and then I'll I'll work out what it is and he said, oh, I don't want to do anything that you can't make. And I said, no, the, what, what I find is better is I think of the visual and then I try and work out how I'm going to make it happen. I don't go based on my limitations because 
then you're, you're never exceeding them. So it's it's been really fun. My biggest fear is that one day, because I'm not an artist, I never went to, I never studied it. I'm not, um, I don't put the hours in, in terms of trying to learn how to do it. The only hours that go into it, the fact that the flip charts take me weeks to make. Um, but I wouldn't class myself. Anyone who looked up close to them would be like, you're not even staying within the lines. Like when I colour them in, I'm so so rushed but you don't need to be detailed because you're moving the page over so quickly that it, people don't have the chance to really look at whether something is perfect but my biggest fear is that someone who is an artist who's very good will come in and go hey that's a good thing and then just like start doing paper puppetry stuff as well and then I'll be like oh gosh <laughs> it's like my biggest concern because right now I'm the only person who does it but it will, all it will take is someone to come in and do, who does it better than me and then uh but that would require your brain as well in terms of like your sensibility and your everything that makes you who you are or a similar kind of oh, I hope you're right disposition yeah that, <laughs> I did meet one person actually I say that's my biggest fear I met that person I met that person um, they were in a very, very successful, um, can I say that? Yeah, I'll say that. So they were in, um, well, technically they still are in uh, an Irish um, musical double act called The Rubber Bandits. And um, uh, Blind Boy's the guy who sort of runs a Twitter account and he has his own podcast and he writes books and everything like that. But um, the guy who plays Mr. Chrome, um, when they're not touring as the Rubber Bandits and singing and performing, um, he's uh, a professional prop maker and incredibly, incredibly talented. And he did go to uni and study art and prop making and all those sorts of things. He's really, really um, clued in on all of that stuff. And we met because one of their videos is a song called uh, it's a song called Spastic Hawk, and it involves a pop-up book. But a lot of the animation is very similar to the stuff that I do. And we met backstage once, and and I said, um, "Who made the video for for that song?" And he said, "I did." And I said, "Oh, because I I use a very similar technique, but in my stand-up." Then he came to see my show, and. Um, and we ended up chatting about it. And he, fortunately, he's never wanted to go into solo stand-up, so no. I've never <laughs> been. And they don't really incorporate it into the Rubber Bandit stuff that much. Um, but we ended up, there's a Canadian comic called Deanne Smith. And if you check her YouTube, she has a song called, oh, it's something about the apocalypse. But it's sort of a zombie love song. And he and I together made a video for it. And it's, it's interesting because the style of art is immediately better <laughs> than the stuff that I make. But it was, um, I learnt so many techniques off of him and he was really, really nice to sort of teach me a couple of things that I hadn't sort of considered on how to do it. But that's all stuff that he'd actually been trained to do and learnt to do. Mm. Um, so yeah. I guess technical, well technically, no, I was right the first time, technical stuff aside, mm. how did you develop your voice or your kind of the routine the sort of comedy that you wanted to put out into the world um 
It's a good question because I feel like I still am. Like I don't yeah. think I've ever fully achieved what my voice. I think it's because just as people we change, don't we? Like I'm very different now to what I was ten years ago, and and certainly ten years before that. So um, I feel like it's very hard to know what your voice is in comedy because if you change as a person, then obviously your voice changes as well. So I think I've just always gone with sort of what makes me, what makes me laugh which is a very obvious one um but also i because i have such a short attention span i i have to change up genres um in my hour long shows so when i do sets and stuff it's sort of a mix of me you know telling anecdotes or or running ideas in fact there's a bit that i've been doing recently which i'm still sort of developing but i don't know if i want to overdevelop it it's basically just a story of the time i met dean kane and there's no jokes in it at the moment. It's just me proper fangirling about Dean Kane. Like, I get really gushy. Because he's Superman or because he's Ripley's Believe It or Not? All, all of the above. Right. I'm already starting to get, like, really... <laughs> he's like... Anyway, we, he bought me a steak. Whatever. No big deal. And so we had, we had dinner kind of together. It was a big... Thank you. It is a big deal. We had dinner together. And I'm, I'm, I, basically, it came about because I was doing a new material night where... I was meant to be trying out some other jokes and then before I went on stage the MC was chatting to someone in the audience and then they said who's the most famous person you've met and the audience member said oh I don't really they're a session musician they had a little chat about that and I went on I was like okay before I do my jokes do you guys want to know about the most famous person I met they said yeah and I said okay so I'm going to tell you about the time that Dean Kane bought me a steak and then I just talked about Dean Kane for 10 minutes with no jokes like I just talked about how I um, it was it was at a comic con, and then I found out about his career, and he you know he produced Ripley's or believe it or, believe it or not yeah no I like, didn't know that and anyway if I'm not careful we're gonna end up spending ten minutes talking about Dean Cain so That's I won't go me. into it too much was it here uh, no it was in Brussels because right. um, I was co-hosting Comic Con with another comedian called Matt uh, Matt Hyten and um, so anyway I've I've been telling this story on stage. And people laugh a lot at it, but there's no jokes in it. There's no, I haven't written it out. I haven't worked out what I'm saying. It's just me getting overly excited about Dean Cain and explaining why he ended up stopping being in TV shows. Basically, he's a single dad and he didn't want to spend so much time. He's just really great. <laughs> and then I, I sort of just gush over him and then, and then that's 10 minutes done. And people really enjoy it. And people keep coming up afterwards. They're like, that story's amazing. And and I don't know whether to write it down and try and turn it into sort of something a bit more uh, written, you know, and then put in some proper jokes and toppers and things like that, or whether doing that will lose the magic of telling a story you're truly passionate and excited about. It's like when you get to that point where your friends go, like, Alistair, tell that story again. Tell the story. And when you've stopped caring about the story, then it loses its magic. And I'm, try- I'm sort of a bit worried about doing that. So, mm. um, But there is a science to stand-up or to comedy. Mm. So I wonder if there is... Yeah, I wonder what that is. What- I think it would depend on the audience. Like, I think if I was to go into an audience who had never seen me before, I haven't told that story to an audience who don't know who I am yet. So whenever I tell it, it's usually, or at least like enough of the audience know who I am. Um, so I think if I was trying to go more mainstream with it, I would sort of build it into something a bit more professional. But 
the thing about finding my voice is that I've been trying to allow, I used to be so scripted and so regimented and, and over the last few years I've been putting things into place that mean that I can talk to the audience more or I can be a bit more myself and talk how I would normally in conversation with someone because I've found that the people who like me and who have followed my career really respond well to that and that's really nice because that kind of then feels like they're they're not just there because oh look at the picture she does like they're there because we clearly are on the same wavelength and that's really nice um so yeah I think playing around more with just being more natural on stage has been part of my journey of finding out who I am on stage. Mm. And how does moving to London fit into all of this? Oh, so, uh, so I was in Melbourne for a bit and things were going okay, but I was working in a bowling alley to... to AMF? It was Kingpin. Kingpin. Okay. Yeah. Um, no strike. Probably was was, was it, it was around? Yeah, uh, it was the central um, Melbourne Central one, which is now the QV, I think, or near there. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I was casually shrugging my shoulders. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. I just realised that. Yeah. <laughs> Dead air. Um, yeah, we. Uh, I I realised that I, I I had nothing keeping me in Melbourne in terms of like, the, there was nothing on the horizon in comedy or with work. And I was only doing jobs that would support my comedy addiction anyway. And then, um, and around that time I met my now husband, who you very briefly met before on his way out, who's a very grumpy Scottish man <laughs> who, who likes to drop the C-bomb whenever uh, tiny things happen. Um, but, it's a good uh, bomb to drop. It's a good, but it it sounds great coming from a Scotsman as well. Right. Like, yeah. I think if you're gonna say it, be be Scottish. Be Scottish. Yeah. Um, but he, uh, we met um, when I was. He was the front of house for my first uh, solo show in Melbourne Comedy Festival, and um, and we just hit it off and got on really well. And um, and my flirting technique is to try and make people think that I'm really funny and great like I don't flirt properly I just go like oh look how good I am with words and I sent him a script I was working on and if anyone else had done this I would have been like get out but he sent the script back to me and he'd added stuff to the script and it was so funny and and it reminded me of you know when you're a kid and you write a line and you fold over the paper and then you get a classmate to write a line and then they fold it and then you read it out and it sounds ridiculous but you both have similar sensibilities, so you've both written dumb things, and it works. And it felt like that. I just, I thought, oh, I've, I've found my, my partner in terms of how we think. And, um, and so I said, do you want to work on this script with me? We can write it together. And he said, yeah, sure. So we worked on that together. And then meanwhile, his visa was like starting to run out and he was going to have to go back to the UK. And, and then, uh, yeah, and then I like during that time of just sort of being friends and and working with him, and I was like, oh no, I've gone and fallen in love. Whoops! Uh, and then luckily he had as well. That was that was a nice surprise. And so um, yeah, so I, I applied for my British passport because my um, I'm very very lucky in that my mum's uh, originally from Derbyshire, and so I applied for my British passport, and then I got three months well he went away and then there was three months it was longer with us not being together than actually having known each other 
but over those three months I got my passport and I came over and we moved in together immediately and then and and in Edinburgh and then we moved down to London so that was sort of the big thing and I thought I'll try doing comedy in Edinburgh because I thought that's where the festival is that's where everything goes and as soon as it's exactly like Adelaide as soon as a fringe finishes there's like one room and if you're lucky you'll get on there once a month if you're lucky you know so um so I thought well this isn't really going where I want it to go so I came down to London and essentially had to start from scratch because no one no one I'd already had um an hour solo show under my belt by that stage which I'd done at um Melbourne Comedy Festival and Adelaide Fringe I'd already done a bunch of sort of multi-bill shows in various festivals you know I'd, I'd been going for several years and then, and then suddenly I was doing these open mic nights with people who had never done stand-up before. And then people come up to me and go, wow, you're really, that was really good. Where, did you just start? <laughs> I've been going for several years. And then, and then I would say to the organiser, you know, do you know any other gigs I could get a spot on? And, and they'd say, oh, there's, there's a gig around the corner that on Fridays. If you pay five pounds, you'll get five minutes. I was like, I'm not going to pay to perform. <laughs> And I just, yeah, um, I, I remember specifically the time my luck changed with those gigs, actually, was I did this horrible gig near Liverpool Street, uh, which it wasn't the worst gig I've done, but it was in a bar where there was no stage. You were sort of stood in the centre, and around you were people sat at stools with very high tables who were being served burgers, and because it was near Liverpool Street, it was all bankers. So it was all people in their suits who had just knocked off of work. And they're all sitting around in a sort of semicircle, looking down at you while you stood in the centre of this room and desperately tried to make them laugh while they ate. And as soon as a burger would come out of the kitchen, everyone looked at the person carrying the burger and, and you'd lose the audience for 30 seconds while they tried to work out whose food it was. And it was... Uh, a little bit soul-destroying. But there was another act on that night called Max and Ivan, who were a double act. And they were fantastic. And immediately we knew that we were on the same uh, wavelength in terms of um, comedy, but not straight stand-up. And we just hit it off immediately. And I, this is a testament to the sort of, I gave them, I had a business, I had business cards which at the time was like my biggest hint was like get business cards that is a tip if you want to do comedy get business cards but obviously social media makes that easier now um but yeah I, I gave uh, I gave one of my um I gave Ivan my business card and then a week later uh Ivan called me and he said hey sorry this is Ivan I met you at that gig I just found your business card we've just had someone pull out of our gig that we run in Kentish Town which uh, where we're recording now is maybe a 15, 20 minute walk away. And he said, um, would you mind popping in tonight? We'll pay you. You know, I thought, and at the time trying to get paid gigs in London was so hard. And I said, yeah, of course. And so I, I grabbed all my stuff and I, I ran over and did the gig. And then at that gig, there were people who are now sort of agents and working for, t at the time they were just people who enjoyed comedy, but they went on and became like producers and things like that. Uh, one of them was my agent for a while, um, eventually ended up being my agent for a while, uh, and there were other acts on as well, um, the beta males who were a sketch group at the time. There was all these acts on and we all sort of had the same 
sort of in the same worked in the same realm of comedy and um and from that day I found myself getting into this really nice circle of gigs where it was um comedy fans who wanted to go out and know they were safe and know that they weren't they were going to see something different and experimental and they were up for that and supportive and the people I was working with were the same they were supportive and and uh the green room felt like you were amongst friends you never felt like you were having to jostle for attention and some gigs I do are like that but uh it really put me in a good place there's a lot of comics who have come over here from Australia who should by all means be huge international hits and after a while they ended up going back to Australia because this if you don't get in the right circle if you don't get into the right track of of gigs here then it's a really sad place full of very angry bitter old men yeah right um so yeah if i hadn't been for that which is sort of one of the reasons i i also um think as much as i tend to turn down gigs i don't want to do these days that liverpool street one if i hadn't have done that i don't think i don't know if i would have ended up where i am now it's funny to consider those sort of sliding doors or butterfly effect kind of moments where you look at the chain reaction and the initial moment doesn't seem like at the time it may like in that case it's like this is a really shit moment yeah that then actually turns out to be a very pivotal moment yeah yeah exactly it's funny to sort of yeah track those things back what was the worst gig that you've done um worst gig there's been a few the, one, the first work gig I did, which is always the one that burns into your memory, was a gig that I did in North Berwick, which is a tiny town near the border in Scotland, just outside of Edinburgh. And it's a golfing town. So it's um, the majority of people there are 60 plus, white, middle to upper class. Um and it was part of a sort of, oh, here's some acts from the Fringe and they're going to come out and do a show for you. And uh, everyone who was on was killing it. I can't remember the entire lineup, um, but there was, um, they were going really well. And then I went on and I had to do 20 minutes and they stared at me for 20 minutes. And I remember continually looking at the clock and I was going through my material so fast because no one was laughing. There was no reaction. Like heckles, I can deal with heckles because if someone heckles, it gives you something to work with. I don't like heckles, but I can deal with them. But, but silence, I've always said silence is so much worse because silence is like when the whole audience has telepathically agreed that they find you terrible and they're not going to do anything. They just let you die. Um, and... And I remember just feeling, just questioning everything about my life as I was doing these bits and then realising that I was only going to hit 15 minutes because I would already reached the end of my normally 20-minute material but without laughs or clapping or anything like that, I had nothing. And then I was desperately searching through my back archive to think of other things I could say to fill in my last five minutes. It was so painful. And today, if I was to have a, a horrible gig, I would just cut it off early because if I can't bring it around, then 
then I'm only wasting everyone's time. You know, it's no, it's like flogging a dead horse. But at the time I was so new that I didn't know that you could, if, if things got that bad, I didn't know that it probably was better just to cut yourself short. So I just kept pushing until I hit 20 minutes. And I remember my voice almost broke as I said like, thank you, you know, have a nice night. And I sort of walked off just absolutely deflated. And one of the women who worked there, who was being an usher, came over to me and she said, you're very brave. <laughs> and very brave is like, is that is basically someone saying, I don't think you should be doing what you're doing <laughs> because you clearly don't have what it takes. And I just felt horrible. And I went backstage and, and I thought, my one bit of hope is I thought, maybe it's because I'm female. Because sometimes that does happen. I thought, maybe it's that. And then Maeve Higgins went on and smashed it. <laughs> she had a great set, absolutely killed it, tore the roof off. And that's when I realised it wasn't anything to do with outside influence. It was me. It was me. And I just started crying. And Maeve came off stage and she saw me and I was trying to, like, hide my tears. And she said, what's wrong? And I said, well, you saw how I did. And she said yeah and what's the problem and I said that's that's I died I said that's the worst gig I've ever done and she said that's the worst gig you've ever done <laughs> I said well yeah didn't you see like they hated me they just they just hated me for 20 straight minutes and she said I'm sorry did anyone throw anything at you I said no and she said right so you didn't get glassed or anything and I was like no and she said did they boo you off and I was like no and she went well then stop crying because it gets worse <laughs> and, and it was the exact it, it was exactly what I needed because it made me laugh and then it made me it was terrifying as well because you think oh crap yeah if that's but it was her way of saying like that is a small hurdle and if you're going to fall there then you are not going to cope and um immediately I was like yeah you're right what am I complaining about this is fine this is fine. 20 minutes of silence is fine. Stop being a drama queen. And, uh, and yeah, I, I, I left a void of all dignity, but knowing that I was going to be fine. And sure enough, the next day, the show I was doing at the Fringe at the time got a five-star review. So, <laughs> so it swings and roundabouts. But, um, but yeah, I ended up turning that, the story about the, the 20 minutes of silence into a, a bit where I said it felt like, it felt like that bit in Back to the Future where Marty goes into the whole guitar solo at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance and he looks up at everyone who are just staring at him. And so I always tell the story as me finishing my set by saying, I guess you guys aren't ready for that yet, but your kids are going to love it. <laughs> I just would love to finish a set like that one day. It's your Chuck Berry moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, at what point did social media because i know social media is now a pretty mm. big part of your uh i guess presence as a comedian mm. as it is a lot of people who yeah, are yeah. operating in the entertainment space but i suppose i mean i became aware of your work through social media through um you know some of the video stuff that you post uh and you're very active in the way that you engage on both youtube and more specifically twitter mm. at what point did that become something that was very relevant for you? Yeah, I think, well, because I, I was very much of the generation where the internet hit us, like I was going into, uh, I was a tween when the internet hit um, our family. So I was all over chat rooms, 
loved me a chat room. I was also part of the Spice Girls website. Right. I was a member where you got to play Spice Invaders, which is exactly Space Invaders. In fact, that's all it was. It was Space They hadn't even tried. Like, there was, it wasn't like, oh, we've made them look a bit like the Spice Girls. No, it was actually Sp- Space Invaders. It was like a Jerry Hallowell um, backdrop. Yeah, not nah, none of that. Oh, just right. space, space like I can't invaders. I can't like make it clear enough. It was space invaders. Just with the A crossed out. But with the I instead of the A. They hadn't even tried. <laughs> and um but I used to play Spice Invaders on the website because I I was convinced that if I got to the top of the level then the Spice Girls would know who I was. Which of course is is bull. But at the time I was like <laughs> twelve, thirteen and I was like, Yeah, if I get to the top of if I get a high score, they'll they'll see this and they'll know who I am. Um, of course, I never did. Like the high score was probably taken by some dude in his forties <laughs> who who played the original Space Invaders, and um, and so yeah, I tried really really hard, uh, and then um, yeah, I was all all over the chat rooms. MIRC, ICQ. IC. Uh oh, do you remember that? Uh, I was on ICQ, Yahoo Chat, Cheetah Chat, which was kind of a new one that had. It was one of the first ones to have. I guess these days you call them stickers. They were like, they weren't emoticons, but like you could have these little, uh, yeah, they're kind of like stickers right. from, from Facebook, but I can't remember what we called them. Anyway, um, uh, obviously AIM, uh, then MSN Messenger. Yeah, I was all over that <laughs> stuff. I loved it and I was really addicted to it. Um, were you set to away all the time? Uh, no, not then. That came in as soon as I became an adult. Well, actually, right. no, I stopped. I said, but on all my things now, Skype, everything, I'm invisible. Like, yeah. I'm like, I don't want to be talked to. But at the time, I was like, I'm here. Hello. <laughs> I would need friends. Like, my 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 first, uh, ser- I guess you could say serious boyfriend, in a way, like in high school, was, um, uh, was a guy I met using Yahoo Chat. And he lived in Sydney. And for about two years, we would go back and forth and, and, and stay with each other. Um, so yeah, I've I've always liked that sort of stuff. I've always been all over, I was all over MySpace um, and forums and everything. I really enjoyed that, which is why when people like have when people would have a go at Tumblr, at like teen Tumblr, because obviously like there's a lot of people who use Tumblr just for porn, but um, some people have goes at at those on Tumblr, and I just think. Well, I would, that would have been me if I had been born later then Tumblr would have been my forums my, so I was like I've got nothing against it I think it provides a service to some lonely teens who need it and yeah I've just always liked that stuff and then uh, and then I, I was really addicted to Facebook like properly addicted to Facebook and and did that thing where I tried to add as many friends as possible and then started to realise that now I was friends with a lot of people I don't really know. Um, and and then I started Twitter just so I could help push one of my shows. Um, I think it's about nine years ago now. But, um, yeah, I was just trying to sell one of my shows, so I started Twitter. And then every now and then I would just, one of the jokes that I tweeted would, would I wouldn't say viral now because they might, they might have like 100 retweets but at the time felt like they'd gone viral and each time I did a tweet that got a good reaction then I would gain some more followers and then I ended up in those like top 10 comedians to follow on Twitter lists and and every time I appeared in something like that then I get more followers and and that just sort of started to grow but I'm very much on Twitter I'm very much like who, who I was as that dweeby teenager and 
you know, I'm not invisible on Twitter. I'm like, hello, I'm here, we're friends, which is where that engagement comes from. I find it really hard to separate like Twitter me to, to real life me. I think we're very similar. Um, well, you did a thing on Valentine's Day where you wrote poems for everyone. Who... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I said, if anyone replies to this who needs a poem today, I'll try and write a poem for a personalized poem for you, which, of course, I, I think I could have done. It would have taken all day, um, except then my notifications um, uh, stopped loading and I couldn't see who was. I could see there were replies to it, but they weren't showing up. So I didn't know who I was supposed to be replying to. And I thought, oh, it must be my phone. So I checked my tablet and then that wasn't working. And I tried on my laptop and that wasn't working. And then I thought, oh, it must be my internet. So I changed it to, and I just tried everything and I realized, no, it's just my mentions are broken. And so, um, and so I ended up having to do a call out and saying like, if anyone follows me, feels like writing a poem for someone who doesn't have a poem yet, please do. So I can get through this backlog. And by about lunchtime the next day with the help of about 10 others, um, we, we ended up getting poems to everyone who had, who had replied on Valentine's Day. Um, so cool. It was really nice. And I, I, what, what I found the nicest for me was seeing all these other people start writing poems for others and then seeing the original people who had asked for a poem coming back and saying, like, oh, my gosh, thank you so much to these complete strangers that asked for a poem from someone they follow. Instead, they got a poem from someone they probably have never heard of and then they were going, thank you so much. And they were like, oh, any time. And then, or they would write a poem back to the person who wrote a poem for them. And it was just so, it, it just reminded me of the reason why I loved the internet when it first became a social place, is that it was, it was a place of connecting with people in a really positive and uplifting way. And it makes me sad when I see it being used for the opposite of that. So I, I really like knowing that that and that's not I don't think that 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 I am responsible for any of that I just think I'm lucky enough that the people who I interact with feel the same and are just as willing to disprove what everyone else will have you think Mm. yeah it's uh, I guess uh, social media is so like dripped in algorithms and promotional material and mostly just trash (laughs) that's like mostly where the intent is effectively to just numb you out Mm. Um, that it's really nice when you find that kind of spirit or I guess community yeah I think next year I've already decided that for Valentine's next year uh, so keep an eye out for the hashtags. But instead of me trying to do something where I... Too, I think too often I offer to do something and then I get snowed under because I forget that I'm just one person. And, you know, I might have other things I need to do during the day. Um, Answer emails. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Book trains. Um, and so I think next year I might try and change it to sort of a hashtag thing, saying like a poem for a poem so that people can... Mm still with the same spirit, go out there and give and receive and, and that sort of thing. But without me having to, <laughs> to spend a day going, oh my gosh, how do I rhyme with your name? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you started, or let's say when uh, you were doing those gigs with Justin Hamilton mm. through to now, how is your idea of what would be successful either as a joke or a set or just your career in general how has your idea or definition of that changed 
I think I'm better at knowing what will and won't work on stage. I think I was, I've actually very recently gone back through all of the notebooks and stuff that I found that I'd stored. Most of them don't make sense, but I found scripts for previous shows when I used to script everything out specifically, whereas these days I, I bullet point everything. So I know basically the joke that I want to say, but I don't put any information around that. And I learn what sounds best from just doing the gigs rather than, than trying to write it out and learn it, which makes it harder to change. But a lot of the stuff in previous scripts, I remember seeing stuff and going, well, that's faff. That doesn't make sense. I've gotten too caught up in the truth there. Because so often if a true story happens, you go to so much detail about the truth that it makes the setup longer than the punch. Like if we're going to look at um, comedy in a mathematical way, the setup, the longer the setup, the bigger the punchline needs to be. Um, uh, or you can also have the bigger, if, if the setup gets to a certain point where it gets so long, the punchline can be smaller but it needs to be so small that it's a surprise at how small it is it's unexpected so it's an so an anti-joke essentially so that you still get that element of surprise um so i think i've, I've gotten better at sort of knowing if something's going to work on stage that said there's still probably a lot of stuff i try that don't doesn't have punchlines i think i'm better at knowing what works in terms of delivery and char- like in charisma rather than trying to write it out as a perfect thing that would work in any situation. I think career-wise, I've never known what I've wanted my career to look like. I've just taken it as it comes, and as long as I still enjoy it, then I'll keep doing it. But when I started doing stand-up, I never thought I'd I'd get paid enough to make a living from it. So I was happy to just keep doing entry-level jobs to feed this hobby that I had. And then it was about six years ago over here in London was the first time I was able to go full time. And and that was, that was great because I, I had to go full time because I was getting offers for gigs that meant that I couldn't be in my day job. And it was still a huge financial uh, stress because I then was making barely the equivalent of minimum wage, barely. Whereas, you know, my day job, um, it was still entry level stuff, it was still just customer service, but it was, you know, if I get data, I could get promoted, I could become the team leader, I could, you know, I could at least get enough money that I could afford to go on a holiday or maybe save up for a deposit on a place or something. Um, And then as soon as I went full-time comedy, then I was back to living like a student, you know, and you're eating toast for lunch and, two-minute noodles for dinner but but I knew that I was happy and that's all that mattered and then I just kept doing it I have like dreams of things that I would like to happen but I've learned that sometimes if you have too much of an idea of where you want to end up then you miss all the amazing things that happen on either side of that it's all about the journey right yeah that's it yeah um, thanks so much, Beck, for inviting me into your home and sitting thanks on the floor with me. Thanks for coming here. I appreciate a... it. I normally try and get to other people because you've got equipment and everything, but I had to book all my trains. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's all right. I am, 
I guess, ironically, not really ironic, coincidentally going to a comedy show this afternoon, this evening in uh, Kentish Town. Ah! One of my friends is, I mean, he's, um, he's kind of in, I, I guess, maybe his first year of wanting to, or trying Are to do comedy. Are you a bringer? What does Are that mean? I'm uh, the plus one. The plus one. That means he gets to go up on stage, Is I think. Is it at the Rose and Crown? It's at the Quinn. Or Quinn. Quinn's. Quinn's. Don't know that one. Is it maybe called Virgin Comedy or something? I oh, yeah, yeah. Or maybe that was the other night and I couldn't go There's to that There's Comedy one. Virgins that's down in Stockwell. That was the one like that. that I couldn't go to. Right. Right. There's one, the one, the, there's a one, there's a new material night in... In Kent, I'm sure there's loads there because we're in London, but there is one on Thursday nights in Kentish Town called the Freedom Fridge, right? Which is at the Rose and Crown, which is normally my haunt if I'm not gigging elsewhere, because um, you get to see all the people who are starting out, mm. which I actually really enjoy. I tend to MC it because I MCing is the thing that I'm the least good at. So if I MC a new material night where I'm not getting paid, I don't feel like I have to do well. So I'm way more relaxed and happy to play with the audience and and enjoy myself rather than think like, oh no, people have paid for this, I'm going to let them down. So uh, yeah, that I just wasn't sure because that's one of my... It's a weird one because sometimes you'll end up with more performers than you do audience members. Right. And it ends up becoming a sort of more of a workshop than a gig. Yeah. But, um, but I, I like the... There's some regular characters that go there and you get a real mix of, of new people but also established acts who are trying out new stuff and mm. the guy who runs it, Andy Onions is his name and he's, uh, he's a real character and he'll <laughs> love to have a drink with anyone afterwards. Well, Pete, if you're listening to this and we've gone to the show tonight, uh, you should go there for your you next show. do that show. one. Yeah, let me know as well. I'll try, I'll try and MC it. Make sure you get a nice <laughs> intro. <laughs> All right. Um, hey, look, I've been... I, I finished my every conversation with the same question, which I guess you know, yes. having listened to Tegan. I'm ready for it. You're ready for it. Well, yeah. I've been trying to... I feel like... In a way, I feel like that, this, that it's become a bit stale. Okay. And I guess I've been having a lot of, I've noticed that I've had a lot of conversations with people and I've gotten to this question, the, the what makes you silly question. And people have been taken, the, the people who I'm interviewing have been like taken aback by the fact that that would be my last question. Oh. And, I, and it made me go, oh, is, is there something in the vibe of what we're speaking about that means that maybe it is, it's almost like the anti-joke oh, yeah, sort of yeah. thing where it's been this long, you know, hour long kind of quite... I guess, thoughtful conversation that then ends with this kind of absurd. But also I feel like it's a question that tends to come in the middle of interviews. Yeah. It's not usually a closing question. Right. I think that's the only thing. It's not actually an abnormal question. It's a perfectly normal and good question. But normally it's in in amongst all the other stuff. Like, Mm. what are your biggest influences? And uh, I don't know. Trying to think of others. Well, I guess the the thinking was that the the conversation would all. When I was growing up, my grandfather would always be like, "Remember the eleventh commandment, laugh, especially at yourself." <laughs> and so, there was kind of that ethos of like, at least if the conversation that I have is gets incredibly earnest or deep or is not very good, then at least there's always like a kind of funny ending. Yeah, that's true. You get to end on up because I have felt very serious during this one. Yeah, I feel like it's just been like my autobiography. <laughs> yeah, it feels like my Dean Kane story. There's no jokes in it. 
I've had a good time. I've really enjoyed myself, though. Yeah, I should make that very clear. Yeah. Why don't you tell me what makes you silly, then? We can end this. All right. Uh, I Being bored makes me silly. Right. Yeah, any time, which is why being so close to your phone and TVs and stuff can be dangerous because um, boredom is tends to give birth to creativity. And, and these days we don't allow ourselves to be bored anymore because it's unpleasant. But then normally you end up being silly or creative to get out of that unpleasantness. And these days now you can just pick up your phone and, and say hello to someone. Mm, get a um, little dopamine hit. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, for me, I'm probably at my silliest when I'm brushing my teeth because I hate brushing my teeth. It's so <laughs> boring. And because your hand's busy, you can't check your phone. So unless you're like listening to something, but even then, because I have an electric toothbrush, so it's it's hard to hear stuff over it as well. So I can't like listen to a podcast or you can't watch TV with it because then you can't really hear the TV over it. And then you're just like, if if um, Gab's watching TV and I come in with the electric toothbrush, he can't hear the TV. So it's How the best time. How loud is this time. toothbrush? So loud. No. <laughs> it's a, but you know, because the sound's in your head. So yeah. you're like, it's like trying to hear something over a car. Um, so what do you do on a flight to Australia? Uh, well, those are easy because you've got movies yeah, and true. podcasts and that's true. yeah. But um, brushing my teeth—that's when I'm at my, brushing my teeth is when I'll dance around like an idiot. Brushing my teeth is when I'll—I always insist on trying to talk to Gav when I'm brushing my teeth because I really like making him guess what I'm saying and then doing a weird charades. And it's never anything important. It's always like. He's like, what's that? And he's like, you're going to get milk tomorrow. I'm like, ah. <laughs> but it really makes me really, really happy. And that's normally when I'll, I'll also like try and make up songs. I always make up songs, like a lot. Where I'll just be like, like, because Gavin's the only other person in this little one-bedroom flat, so it's always just me going like, Gavin, he is a man. He was from Scotland, but now he is trying to watch TV. No, I won't shush. Gavin, like, it's just really fun. Is that how you came up with uh, the No Regrets? Uh, no Regrets. Bylines? <laughs> bylines, but translations? Um, no Regrets is the... It's, oh, it sounds so horribly cynical... Um, I was doing a show about regrets um, and I knew that I wanted to open the show. I always try and open shows with like a musical thing with the flip chart and I usually try and close with them too. And I thought I'm going to open with that song and then I thought, genuinely thought, what tends to get shared the most these days? Misheard lyrics. I'll do a misheard lyrics to it. It was so like planned. I knew that it would go down well. Um, and I'm really annoyed at that because anything that I genuinely love, like where I've been like, this is very funny to me, like anything I create where I'm like, yeah, I'm very, very proud of this. I, I really rate this. It's, it never goes as well. Right. But with that thing, I was like, oh, people will probably share this because everyone's heard <laughs> of the song. And of course, that's exactly what happened. Um, and then because it went so well, then I couldn't put it at the beginning of the show because now it's, now it's like the thing that, that's probably gets the best reaction out of the stuff I do. So, um, so I ended up closing the show. Um, uh, but I did, I had to listen to that song uh, on repeat for a week with it in my headphones. And, uh, and what I didn't want to do, the lyrics repeat a lot and I didn't want to have the same misheard things for each repeating lyric because I've, I find that very lazy. I really don't enjoy when musical comedy uses the same lines in the chorus 
because I think that's an option for you to make people laugh again and when they've already heard the same joke before it's less funny so I was like right I'm gonna gonna come up with different things so it was really hard actually because the first couple you come up with you're like oh yeah, that's easy there's a couple where you're like oh yeah it definitely sounds like that but then once you start going oh I've already thought of that oh that sounds like that which is funny because you get people commenting on the YouTube one where they're like doesn't really sound like that. I'm like, yeah, I know it doesn't. That's why the pictures help, because then you just draw stupid pictures and then people are like, oh, okay. Yeah. I'll let you get away with that one. Mm. Well, I guess we've ended the podcast on uh, on that note as well. Yeah, yeah. So... If anyone wants to watch it, uh, don't go and watch that on YouTube. <laughs> um, go you and watch some of your other videos. Yes. Yeah, give, yeah. Do that. It's it's like you have you ever written a tweet that you're really really proud of and then it gets nothing and then you write another tweet that's like, ugh. Just I mean, I'm lucky fart. if I get like two people <laughs> liking a tweet that I do. I'm very passive on Twitter. Um, oh, I haven't been recording. Well, thank you so much, Beck. Thank you.